Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Iron Man 3, the latest installment in the superhero Marvel franchise. I'm joined here in the Slate studio by Forrest Wickman, a staff writer at Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks for coming to Spoil. And we actually Thanks have a third me. this time. Unusually, <laughs> we have Nina Shen Rostogi. Hi, Nina. Hi. And you are a former Slatester. Yes. Sometimes well, Slate contributor. Slatester. And always Slatester at heart. <laughs> always forever. And and now you are the director of Figment. Can you tell us uh, what Figment is? Yeah. You're the I'm, head of content at Figment. Yes. Right. I'm the head of content. Uh, Figment is a uh, digital writing community for teens and young adults. So we have a user-generated library of about half a million stories, mostly by 13 to 19-year-olds. So uh, listeners out there who fall between those ages or know people who do should... Uh, Send them over to figment.com. Oh, that's place. So it's a, it's a place that you showcase writing and kind of talk about writing with other teenagers. Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, you know, uh, whether if you are a writer looking for an audience, you come to Figment and post your stories. If you are somebody looking for great entertainment, you can come on to Figment and find a huge library of um, works by young people. That sounds great. So. I'm glad it didn't exist when I was 13, though, because that stuff would still oh, live on. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Iron Man 3, guys. Um, I don't know where. Well, we usually start with sort of a, a vague yes or no. Obviously, you can qualify and be ambivalent as the spoiler goes on. But overall, would you say that you liked this movie? I'm a definite yes. The more I think about it, so I, I think a lot of us have had this experience where I've pretty much completely forgotten the movie, and the it's been two days <laughs> since we saw it. Um, so going through the plot synopsis may be hard, but I just liked it as a Shane Black movie, I guess. Which uh, I I was um, talking to the producer of the Slate Spoiler Special before uh, going to see this movie to Chris Wade and. Um, you know, I felt like a lot of these Marvel movies are really sort of constrained by how much uh, all the demands put on them by Marvel. That you have to get this character from point A to point B by the end and so on and so on. But there's definitely so Shane Black's the writer and director. There's definitely a sense of, of his, uh, you know, funny quirks in here, which I enjoy. He wrote um, Lethal Weapon. And uh, he did this movie with Robert Downey Jr. called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that I really like. And this feels almost like an unofficial sequel to that. Hey, you're stealing my review ways. from me. I was just writing about this movie's <laughs> resemblance to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is, yeah, the only other movie he's directed, although he is known for writing action movies really right. well. Mm-hmm. And, and this has a very, very similar feeling. They're showcases for Robert Downey Jr.'s talent. Mm-hmm. They have these kind of snarky, self-aware voiceovers yes. that double back on themselves. But wait, before we get and, into all of and that... And it takes place during Christmas, even though it comes out. Yeah. Yes, Shane Black is obsessed with Christmas, yeah. apparently. Something Every like single one of his movies... Of his eight movies, and this movie doesn't really make a hell of a lot out of the Christmas decor. But anyway, no. okay. So, but but Nina, but I want to hear your overall reaction. My overall, I mean, I I felt like the film had a real kind of crackle to it. I really liked a bunch of the performances, um, but overall, I thought that the movie didn't really stick with me at all. I would have to say, yeah. I think I think what you were saying about the constraints, you know, that every essentially yeah. every superhero action movie of this size is going to have almost mm-hmm. just as a global product, it's going to have those. It doesn't really ever quite supersede yeah. those constraints, I would say. It doesn't shake off those shackles completely, but it's Robert Downey Jr., so it wedges a lot of wit in there. And also, the more I think about it, the less sense it makes, so I'm excited <laughs> to go through that. As yeah, let's talk a little bit about, about the story and some of the stuff that doesn't make sense. And let's get to the villains, too. I definitely want to get to the villains mm-hmm. while we're talking um, while we're talking plot, uh, especially because there's this strange kind of nested villain structure, right? There's a villain kind of that leads yes. to, to another villain. So, okay, n- none of us remember the movie, but together, can we try to come up with some sort of story synopsis? Right. Well, I guess, so at the very beginning, uh, it's a New Year's Eve party in Bern, Switzerland, and it's uh, 1999, yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, Tony Stark is in his old womanizing ways and is uh, leaving a party with the beautiful and 
criminally underutilized in this movie, Rebecca Hall, um, and who plays, she's some, like, mutant, bo- she's not a mutant, but she does, like, mutant botany. She's not a mutant, yeah. No, she's no, she's perfecting <laughs> yeah, yes. the DNA of plants. Yeah, she's turning. And accidentally exploding them. Yes, she makes exploding plants, which you can imagine is a, a you know. A safety hazard. Yes. Um, and so Tony and uh, Rebecca Hall, whose name in the movie I can't even remember. Maya. Maya. <laughs> go off into their hotel room, and on their way in the elevator, they meet a very squirrely Guy Pierce, um, Who's uh, eagerly trying to peddle this piece of biotechnology, right, to get, I guess, Tony Stark yeah. to be yeah. a venture capitalist. So one work? thing I was confused about, isn't he pitching the same technology that Maya's pitching? I don't really want to get into every one of these questions, <laughs> but if you guys don't have the answer to that, I, I, I'm sure there's an answer to that basic of a question. Yeah, I'm not sure how in bed together they're, they're supposed to be at that point yeah. or if they're more sort of like colleagues that vaguely know each other. My impression was that she comes to work for him later on. In yeah, right. That was my impression as well. But doesn't isn't the technology that Guy Pierce's character pitches the same thing? The like brain? About yeah, DNA. essentially. But I think it was like in beta back then and he needed yeah. Maya to make <laughs> yeah. it all come Maybe, together or yeah. something. But so then anyway. w- once we get to the present day, oh, one thing I wanted to say about that flashback is that it is an endearing way to begin because it, it incorporates uh, the biography that we know of Robert Downey Jr. I mean, I think anytime yes. you hear yes. about Tony Stark's past, you're also talking about Robert Downey Jr.'s mm-hmm. past. And I maintain that I think still think a huge part of the charm of this character is just how sort of collectively proud everyone is of Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. For, for pulling himself up basically out of you know the gutter to become this superhero yeah and and my understanding i'm not a i'm not a you know huge iron man comics fan but my understanding is that the one really like big iron man storyline has to do with iron man confronting his or tony stark confronting his alcoholism so there was like all right there was always a kind of like nice marriage of that of that actor and that but that hasn't come in in the movies at any point yet right i I mean there's some sort of there's a hinted addiction in this movie when he's kind of addicted to his tinkering as he calls it you know he gets addicted to just waking up really early and going into his workshop and working on dancing weirdly to christmas music and ignoring his girlfriend i never want to have see that image again (laughs) oh i loved it but so so let's get so the, now we get back to the present day and the superhero plot. So Guy Pierce in the interim has become this suave biotech millionaire, I guess, who's still mm-hmm. looking for venture capital. Is that why he goes back to Tony Stark again? I, it, it seemed like maybe that was the cover, but really he just wanted to get infiltrate. At Pepper, right? Yeah, infiltrate. Yeah, I'm not totally sure. One important detail is that the first time he appears, he has like horrible, horrible teeth, and he's sort of hobbling with a cane. Mm-hmm. And then the next time he appears, as you, as you said, he's suave and mm-hmm. and he's like totally a stud you know physically as well right. standing upright and right presumably the so, extremists exactly is it is it a technology is it a virus i don't know what the thing is a biotechnology a bio- <laughs> it's very poorly explained which i think is a flaw in the movie it does the science doesn't have to make sense it can be the cheesiest pseudoscience yeah. we want it to be the cheesiest pseudoscience but we want to have one expository scene where somebody's like pointing at vectors and explaining yeah. what happened to these people right because when he administers this biotech whatever it is to them they essentially turn into like walking pillars of Lava. flame yeah but I, I think i mean i think and i know we maybe want to talk about villains after, but I think the, the sort of problem with the plot structure is very similar to the sort of problems I had with. No, we're villain. on. This is villains. This is our discussion of villains. So, okay. so take it away. Let's get into the second, and I think more interesting and more complicated villain. Right. So, um, so the villain uh, at, at the top of the film ostensibly is this character called the Mandarin, who has some kind of crazy TV hacking powers, and he can just like show up on broadcasts. And he, uh, he's played by the always marvelous Ben Kingsley um, and he kind of has this like Bin Laden beard and this sort of samurai top knot and you know when he when he shows up on people's screens he's got these like 
dragon statues by him. He's wearing these long robes. Um, yeah, so he's this mix of Orientalisms, right? Where yeah. you can't yeah. figure out what what's, what what's going where. And his accent, I think, deliberately is a complete mess. Like what is what is that? It's kind of flat Midwestern by yeah. way. It's of his accent from sneakers, which is notoriously <laughs> puzzling, as noted at length in Slate. I see. That's, that's but yeah. I don't think it's an accident because when he shifts accents, as we'll get to in a minute, I mean, it's too precisely dead on for the first accent to have been just an amalgam of misses you know I right think it was right it was i mean you know and and in the pre uh release um you know interviews that he's given that he had given and the producers had given they you know they talk about the fact that the mandarin is a character who sort of deliberately blurs ethnic lines and he's about you know scrambling your cultural signals and representing sort of everything america is afraid of you know um and so um so this this is this is the character of the Mandarin at the beginning and the history of the Mandarin the Mandarin is uh sort of in the comics he's Tony Stark's longest running foe you know he's kind of the main villain because he's just the longest <laughs> running um but he begins you know in the in the Iron Man canon in the early 60s from the earliest as the sort of Fu Manchu kind of like descendant. Yellow peril. Yellow, yellow peril, yeah. Um you know in the Fu Manchu style he is this brilliant Wily Oriental, who also happens to be like a karate master, and then there's like a whole plot where he discovers like alien technology and dragons and whatnot. Um, but in this film, you know, there had been a lot of talk before the movie was released about the fact that you have Ben Kingsley, who is a half South Asian, half British actor, playing this character who is sort of historically always half, you know, Han Chinese and half. British. Um, so anyway, so this is the whole backstory. Everybody wondering like what kind of cultural mess the Mandarin is going to be and in the film about like two thirds of the way through Iron Man you know Tony Stark goes to Miami where he has somehow discovered that definitely in Florida yeah it's around Miami the Mandarin is and uh, the Mandarin was revealed to be this um, you know sort of drunken British Trevor Slattery Trevor Slattery actor who has been hired to play the Mandarin and all along the real villain is the newly gorgeous Adrian I don't even know what is what's his name what's Guy Pearce Killian name? is his last Killian. name which is a good yeah. which is a good super yeah. and yeah. his first name is something like Eldritch but it's not Aldrich 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 Killian yes um, so all along the, um, the the crazy ethnic oriental other was the puppet of this mastermind yeah. right, right. So. deliberately constructed that way by Killian right the scene is actually very funny where Ben Kingsley switches over to being Trevor Slattery and suddenly has a cockney accent and yeah. is a drunk and a drug so addict so funny Cracking just like and... just such good timing that, that Ben Kingsley and very good dialogue actually between them in that scene too but actually I think the movie never reaches that height again and certainly that character never mm-hmm. does he essentially drops out of the movie so at once I thought the exposure of you know that weirdly ethnic performance you're talking about as a performance mm-hmm. and as complete artifice was great and interesting and brought up something that could have been kind of awesome like a whole chapter of the movie about superhero self-construction mm-hmm. you know and how did Aldrich Killian decide on all these signifiers and pull it together yeah. and hire the actor and instead essentially that character disappears from the movie until we see him like being taken into custody at the end or something Right, and he's all excited because of the flashbulbs. But, (laughs) I mean, I think that, you know, uh, one of the things that the Mandarin says when we still think that he's, like, the villain is, you know, asks us to consider the fortune cookie, which, you know, like, looks Chinese and sounds Chinese but is actually American, which is why it's hollow and meaningless. And it's like you just built your own critique of this, this character and the mythology into your movie. You know, like, all of it feels empty in the fact that 
The plot doesn't hold together in any way that makes a coherent mythology. The villains don't feel like, I don't know, like like villains with any kind of substance to them. Um, but don't you still, I agree with all that, but don't you guys still forgive this movie a lot because of the genre that it exists in is just so limiting. I mean, we could wish that this kind of movie didn't exist anymore, that we were done with the epic of superheroes and that they disappeared like dinosaurs. But given that they do exist, I mean, as you said at the beginning, this movie does crackle. It has a lot of life mm-hmm. for this kind of movie. Yeah, just as, you know, a twist for me sitting there while watching my popcorn, though I wasn't, it, I, it was great. It got huge laughs. Um, and I, It was one of the smarter twists I've seen in any of these movies and one of the most legitimately surprising ones. There were some, you know, things that could tip you off like that accent early on and I was beginning to get suspicious but still it was delightful to me when it happened but I, but I understand when I talk about forgiving from. it though it's not even so much the twist I'm, I'm talking in a larger sense just about the whole you know the, the, the top heavy actionness mm-hmm. of the whole movie mm-hmm. you know the fact that the last 20 minutes is essentially kind of indistinguishable from any other superhero yeah, action yeah, movie yeah, yeah all, I mean, all that stuff and is, and is something punchings. of a given but yeah. I still was surprised the extent to which some sort of story character you know any sort of um you know, humor was able to be wedged in there, mainly in the scenes between Gwyneth Paltrow and Robert Downey Jr. Although one disappointment I had getting back to who turns out to be the main villain is Guy Pierce. I found I love Guy Pierce. I always want to see more of him. He's been playing a lot of villains lately, almost exclusively villains now. Um, and he's really fun and maybe a sort of questionable role in Lawless, for example. But in this... I didn't really know what to take away from his character. I, don't, I had no idea what motivated him. He, he gives a speech about how he's, you know, engineering this villain. At the same time, he's, he's creating the technology to fight them. So he's creating supply and demand and an endless cycle that will get him endlessly rich. But that's, you know, it seems like a lot to throw the whole world into, into like world war <laughs> yeah, just like, to make a bunch of money. Yeah, it's like almost like trying to be like like a comment on this sort of, you know, Gleeful capitalist that it, that like Tony Stark is like yeah. this like control but like it's yeah like he needs <laughs> some kind of ideological motivation however absurd in order to reach you know the heights of, of supervillaindom he yeah. has you know he has to have mean something larger than just I want power and money yeah. for the sake of power or or just that you know I used to be like a nerd with bad hair and bad skin and bad teeth and therefore I want to wreak havoc on beautiful people and the world but even that. Didn't yeah, I would have found out. that a lot more compelling just on a, on like a, a personal level watching right. it as as a piece of drama. But and it's it felt like all the every, all the pieces were there for that, but they didn't really right. drive it home. Right. Like Which I is, can I could piece it together myself watching it, but it didn't click yeah. with me at the time. Right. But and that and that to me feels like a kind of like a classic superhero villain motivation. Like like I feel like that would have it would have been really legible. It would have made sense, but they just either didn't feel like they had to because the twist was enough. To sort of satisfy people, that yeah, everything unraveled after the twist, just story-wise. In the villain yeah. plot, both the villain plots became almost completely negligible, and mm-hmm. you were really sort of in it for the the banter, the screwball scenes. Mm-hmm. And then, oddly enough, this sounds so horrible on paper, but the relationship between Robert Downey Jr. and that kid, when they throw in the kid that he meets on the yeah. trip to Tennessee, and he has this kind of dry bantering, very sort of spoofing of a sentimental, mm-hmm. you know, father-son relationship with this kid, that was that was a great addition as well. Yeah, yeah I love that. I mean, it, you say it's like that; it's sort of spoofing that, and mostly it ends up just being Robert Downey Jr. Being a dick to this kid, right? I found that sort of Funny. refreshing. I, I felt like a lot of the movie just felt like sort of Shane Black was sitting in the chair next to me, making fun of the movie as it went along, mm-hmm. and it was enjoyable as that. But then it would just revert back to the sort of bloated action sequences that that didn't really drive home. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I like that whole di- diversion to Tennessee. Yeah, like, I'm with still not the kid. 
just don't entirely remember who that kid was or... I think he's just a random... Didn't just, Iron Man just happen to, like, crash near his yard? Yeah. And, and he was enough just, of a mechanics nerd that he had a workshop, right, that, right, that right. the Iron Man could use to repair his Iron Man and that's, suit. And that's another element, too, I guess. It's like Iron Man's suit is broken down, and Iron Man is sort of rebuilding himself and spending time mm-hmm. sort of dealing with his trauma from New York, another plot line that I don't really think went anywhere. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he resolved his trauma from New York. But anyway, that kid is a lot like the young Tony Stark is, is, is driven home by the fact that he's building stuff a lot mm-hmm. and the fact that he has an absent father and so Tony Stark is always bashing on this how he says something about how the absent father is just a dick or something and yeah. like, get over it don't be a pussy about it don't be a pussy right <laughs> And there's not really any redemption or any moment where he apologizes for mistreating the kid he just kind of continues to beat him about the head and face yeah, yeah which which I very much enjoyed Okay, maybe because we're all somewhat bored by the action in this movie, we haven't really spoiled any of the action. So if someone's sitting around saying, I want to understand about that awesome moment in the trailer when I saw X, Y, or Z, we haven't addressed any of those moments. Do you guys want to take any big, spectacular action scenes and say anything about them, good or bad? So I think this action scene is, is neither big nor spectacular, but the, the, the action sequence that really sets things going um, is this bombing at the Man's Chinese Theater um, in California, and uh, that's where we meet, I guess, like the main uh, sort of henchmen, although they're hench people, there's henchmen and henchwomen um, in this movie, um, who are these people using that plant G- DNA biotechnology who... Um, are able to turn themselves into fire people, I guess. They look like T-1000 from Terminator <laughs> 2. And then, either intentionally or not, they occasionally explode um, and then either reform themselves or don't reform themselves. And the mechanics of this were a constant source of frustration for me because... All right, you have no idea what the laws of the fire people yeah. are. How yeah. are they killed? How are they made? Do they have minds or are they, they just mindless zombies? They used to be disabled? I think, yeah, they were soldiers who were disabled and so signed up for some sort of healing because they were desperate to get their legs back from Iraq or, or whatever. Um, and, yeah, sometimes it works out and they survive and sometimes they explode. <laughs> and, and sometimes they get shot in the chest and immediately die. And sometimes, as we see with Gwyneth Paltrow in the end, they fall into a giant ball of flames from 300 feet and survive. (laughs) And I have no idea what the difference here is. Like, there's no silver bullet or stake to the heart um, that that is the clear way. that. And maybe it's explained in the comics. Like, that might be what they're relying on. But I think that's an annoying and lazy device. Clearly, all of Gwyneth Paltrow's kale smoothies that allowed her to uh, allowed her body to absorb that. Um, (laughs) I also thought that man's Chinese theater scene, like, I was... I mean, because I went into this movie um, looking to see if there was something to write about the villain, and so that scene, I was like, I was like, oh my god, okay, Asian signifiers in America, there's going to be something here, and there wasn't. Yeah, they didn't really but do yeah. anything. It, yeah, it's just they, a vaguely famous place to blow up. Yeah, it. that has like Asian, you know, and so they could talk about fortune cookies and man's Chinese theater. Like there was at some point, the Mandarin like does try to like compare man's Chinese theater to a fortune cookie, which is like an. American simulacrum of something that means something. I mean, you lost me. Um, Nor did they do anything with those like metal arrowheads that they have in the suitcase. Do you remember this at the time? I guess it's sort of a MacGuffin, and presumably it will pay off in like the Avengers two or something. But in the meantime, I have no idea. (laughs) Wow, you guys watch this at a whole different level than me. I have no memory of metal arrowheads in the suitcase. But I wanted to shout out to the I think the the best um, action scene in the movie, which is this skydiving, very simple skydiving stunt, where essentially Air Force One explodes, a bunch of people 
fall out of it. There's a pretty terrifying scene of people just being sucked out of a hole in an airplane into the sky, and you sort of think, well, high body count. Those people mm-hmm. are done for. But no, Iron Man ends up diving down, skydiving down and making this human chain because Jarvis, his supercomputer voiced by Paul Bettany, is coming in his ears to tell him you can only hold four of these 13 people that have mm-hmm. fallen out of the plane. And so he ends up using teamwork to make this human chain. It's completely absurd. I would love a physicist to talk about the 15 reasons that it's impossible. In, in but fact, it's a great it's, fantasy. It's of definitely rescue. an explainer topic. Could be. <laughs> Although I'm working on, on one about the uh, infamous three-point landing, which is the landing that Iron Man always does. Oh, Do you know the, this? No. Yeah, where you basically, anytime a superhero lands in movies these days, they land with one f- knee down, one leg off to the side, one <laughs> fist down, and one like hand up. I can picture that perfectly. Yeah. Three-point, just like a plane or something. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so I'm I'm looking into whether it's actually a good way to. <laughs> I'm, asking, I'm asking a bunch of kinesiologists. It depends. Are your knees experts. made of plutonium? Is the first right, question. Yeah. Exactly. If you're Iron Man, you can presumably get. You can presumably land any way you want. Um, and I yeah. guess this is the last big, um, you know, special effect scene that ever people saw in the trailer was. Tony Stark's house being blown up was that in the trailer? That yeah, that was in the trailer. And right, it happens very early. Basically, Tony Stark gets really pissed, and so he broadcasts his address on on you know live TV or something. And or says not, like guess, you know, come get me, Mandarin. Yeah. But like, I don't understand. Like, Tony Stark's house is so big. How do people not already <laughs> know where it is? Like, yeah. why did he have to go on television? It is not the Batcave. <laughs> it's not the Batcave. And it's so it's... iconic and visible, right? In yeah. its own universe, it's constantly being shown on television, like Stark Industries, and you it see that clearly... modern house on the cliff. <laughs> yeah. Nor does Tony prepare that well for this inevitable attack from his arch, arch ne- nemesis. I yeah. guess he sets some things up, but mostly he just lets them in. Yeah. You would think, I would sort of like as a character trait if he were more upset that his lair had been destroyed, because obviously the man has house pride. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. we see so many scenes of him, you know, working on his place, putting cool new things in his place, you buying know. giant bunnies for <laughs> yes. his his live-in lover. And yet, neither of them seem to really mourn their incredibly cool residence when it's blown to bits. Yeah. Maybe Iron Man Four will be like the two of them, like living in a yurt somewhere, like you know, getting back to the land. <laughs> So, you know, one quick gripe from there is that all of the suspense from that whole house attack sequence is just manufactured by the fact that Tony's uh, suit, for some reason, isn't charged yet. So you're just so he can't fly. And so you're waiting for him to fly and you're waiting for him to fly and he's fighting and you're waiting for him to fly. And then all of a sudden, of course, at like the last minute, he's down at the bottom of the ocean. And you've seen this in the trailer. It's like, how does Tony, how will he get out of this one? Tune in next week. And then it's just like, your suit is now recharged. And then he flies away. And it's It's cheap. It's like superhero anxiety for the iPhone age. Yeah. Like the big, the big anxiety is will the progress bar make yeah, it until exactly. the end? That's like, what right. you're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, please come in very soon again, and let's do a, a three-way spoiler. This was really fun. We'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. <laughs> 